Welcome, Redemption Parker, to another Theology on the Ground. So good to see you guys here tonight. Super excited about our topic and our guest. As we all know, Jesus talks a lot about money. And it's clear from Scripture that how we handle our money is part of our own discipleship. If we want Christ to be formed in us, we can't leave out the topic of money. We need to think and act Christianly with our wallets. Like we saw from Exodus this morning, God cares about every area of our lives. But often in the church, other than so-called prosperity gospel churches, money isn't always a topic for sermons or discipleship. But check out how close Jesus ties money and possessions to our hearts. I'm going to read a passage out of Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is more than a debt issue. This is a heart issue. This is a gospel issue. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest, the real theologian, Dr. Craig Blomberg is the Distinguished Emeritus New Testament Scholar at Denver Seminary. He's married to his wife, Fran, who I've heard from Brandon Washington is even cooler than you, Dr. Blomberg. He has two daughters and is the king of puns. Just wait. Dr. Blomberg has written over 30 books He's on the Committee of Translators for the NIV Bible. He's a world-renowned New Testament scholar, and I'm so excited to have him here with us. I was introduced to Dr. Blomberg through a book I had to read in seminary. Um, it was Jesus and the Gospels. It's somewhere back there, along with a few other books. Um, it, my, my, my New Testament um, professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary who, who had me read that book for his class. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget what he said to me one time. I was, I was on campus um, in Kansas City and it was after chapel and he, he found out that, that, that I actually live in Denver and he, he told me, Rick, I'm, I'm glad you're one of our students at Midwestern, but what are you doing? You need to sit your butt under Craig Blomberg. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. And so I'm so happy I've, I've, I've done that. In the short time of knowing Dr. Blomberg and learning from him, uh, it's not only his wealth of knowledge in the scriptures that, that impress me, um, but ultimately it's his way of life as a, as a follower of Christ that, that not only has encouraged me, but has brought... Um, a good conviction into my into my life as well. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we all get a glimpse of that this evening. Um, so so thank you for making the time to come all the way out here to Parker to hang out with us. 
Well, let's get right into it. I have I have a few questions I'm going to go through. Um, in about an hour or so, we'll take a little bathroom break, um, and then we'll come back and open the floor for questions and answers. So as he's answering my questions, you can be thinking about what you want to ask him as well. So let me pray, and we'll just jump right into it. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that, that we can come to your throne this evening and, and call you Father through Christ and what he accomplished for us. God, thank you that he has made a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Thank you that we are called to be devoted to you, and, and that includes every area of our lives, including our wallets, our, our finances. Lord, we want to be a church that, that, that gives you full allegiance. So, Lord, we pray that this night would help us grow in that direction. God, we love you. We pray that you would move in this place. Um, be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sweet. So, question number one. In Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. One of your books has that phrase in its title, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Possessions. In doing a biblical theology of possessions, you, you look at the entire canon from, from Genesis to Revelation to see what the Bible as a unified whole says on the topic. Most of us have not read that book, so could you give us a thesis, a little summary of what that book is about? Well, thanks, Rick. Um, I have to tell you a little bit of the backstory this week. Um, when he sent me these questions and uh, the time frame, I, I looked at this and I said, this, this is different than anything I've done before. Usually uh, people come up with a barrage of questions that you can't possibly get through in the time allotted. And he had five for an hour. And I kind of did the mental math, and it said, it sounds like you just want me to give a series of mini lectures. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 we just sit in the front of the room, and this is conversational style. And the first question is, summarize your book. <laughs> conversational style. Um, I, I, I've been waiting for, um, I, you know, I thought, okay, he's going to have nice cushiony chairs. Well, okay, this makes a little more sense. Um, so he wants me to talk for a while. Um, I've tried to boil it down. Um, I think the simplest I can boil it down to is to say I see three recurring themes as you race through both testaments. Um, and the first, and I think the right one to begin with, is that like everything else God created, he saw and sees material possessions as something good. 
That's not true in every religion. There are religions in the world that see the material world as something inherently evil. And the goal of human living is to transcend your body, to transcend this world, to have a very otherworldly mindset, and your goal after this life is over is disembodied immortality. That's not the Christian, and it wasn't the Jewish perspective before it. Genesis 1 repeatedly says that God looked at all that he created and he saw that it was good and then he looked at humankind and saw that it was very good. And even though we're going to have to talk about the sin problem, that'll be point number two, um, as you go through the main characters, the main stories of the Old Testament, Abraham is wealthy, and he uses his wealth in a godly way. Let's Lot choose the nice land. Um, two generations later, Jacob, trying to be reconciled with his brother Esau, gives an enormous amount away as gifts to him. Joseph, who uh, is sold into slavery, but eventually God orchestrates things so that he is second in command to Pharaoh. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Makes him the steward of the seven years of plenty in Egypt um, so that people from all the surrounding nations can come and have enough grain to get through the seven years of famine. Job, who we don't know how far back he goes, but it's probably quite a ways back, is not only said to be wealthy, but repeatedly doing all kinds of good deeds, uh, including helping the poor and needy with that great wealth. God establishes a covenant with Israel. And here's the, the core truth behind the so-called prosperity gospel is uh, God said to Moses, Joshua, their descendants, biologically, spiritually, to the extent that you obey my law, the more obedient rather than disobedient you are, you will live in a land I promised you, flowing with milk and honey. Do we have any kids or adult kids who survived that amazing children's series of cartoon stories, Veggie Tales? <laughs> I cannot hear the land flowing with milk and honey without hearing somebody say, sure sounds sticky. <laughs> but that was uh, an ideal in that culture. Um, to the extent that they became more disobedient than not, then uh, people started wars with them. 
famines hit, uh, natural disasters. Um, worst case scenario, they were exiled from the land. But God made that covenant uniquely with Israel. Not with any of the other nations in the Old Testament. And there's nothing in the New Testament that says that's the way it's going to work. So that if a Christian is faithful or obedient enough, he or she can count on getting rich. Um, and so when you try to carry that over, then uh, you wind up in all kinds of problems. But you go to the New Testament and, and you see uh, a group of wealthy women who help support Jesus and the Twelve when they're on the road. You go to the book of Acts and, and you see a handful of wealthy people here and there. Um, Again, a group of women in Thessalonica who support Paul and his ministry. There's a sort of backhanded compliment in 1 Corinthians 1 when Paul says, Remember, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were well-to-do. Not many of you were well-born. Which means that a few were. And it's presumably those few who hosted the house churches in their homes because nobody else would have owned anything nearly big enough to have even a dozen people to say nothing of the 30 or 40 that might have gathered together at once. Um, the Bible ends with two amazing chapters at the end of Revelation about new heavens and new earth and they're not very airy-fairy at all. We've really done God's word a disservice when we make heaven so boring that, you know, clouds and harps, both of which I like, but um, so much more, a renewed earth as well as renewed heavens. The very fact that the Bible tells us over and over again we should help the destitute, the poor and needy. If having a measure of wealth wasn't a good thing, then we should just leave them in their distress, which sounds pretty sadistic. But there's a second theme that runs not from Genesis 1, but from Genesis 3 <laughs> to at least Revelation 20. So lop off two chapters from each end of the Bible. It's not quite as pervasive. <laughs> and that's sin. Material possessions can become one of the greatest <coughs> seductions, temptations to sin throughout scripture what was it so attractive about the tree of knowledge of good and evil it was fruit no never says an apple that's urban legend no bible ever says that if you didn't know that but it was fruit that was good to look at and it tasted good and it was desirable for making one wise huh 
sounds like what First John 2 will call the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Adam and Eve fell for it. And we've been falling for it ever since. A lot of the laws were designed to guard against people accumulating unbridled excess of wealth. And for those who had surplus to transfer it voluntarily to those who were very needy. There was a triple tithe system that was set up in the law. A lot of people don't know that. Go to Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You want the references? You can look at my book or see me later. Um, one tithe, 10% of the annual Israelites' income, went to the central sanctuary, which for years was the tabernacle in the wilderness um, and later in various settings in Israel. I like to call it the Porta Temple. Um, and then eventually you had the temple in, in Jerusalem that was very stationary. A massive and amazing building um, which itself was filled with wealthy adornment by the way. Um, and the priests who officiated and the Levites who were in charge of the choir and who did not inherit any land in Israel were to be supported through this first tithe. Rough equivalent today, church facilities and their pastors. But then there was a second tithe, a second 10%. Oh, by the way, do you know that the word tithe means 10%? I never heard this when I was a young adult, but in recent years I hear people say really strange things like, well, I tithe 5%. I give 10%, but it's 5%. No, what you mean to say is you give 5%, but you're not tithing. Um, that's, yeah, just weird. Um, <laughs> But that's the way language is. 10% um, was to go for the preparation and execution and cleanup of the annual festivals in Jerusalem. And another 10% that was to be collected every third year was to go directly to the poorest people in the land. It didn't take long beyond the giving of the law for the Israelites to figure out that needs were constant all the time. And so pretty quickly that got prorated into giving three and a third percent a year. So if you ever run across a Christian, or maybe you're one of them, try not to step on too many toes. Don't see any down there. Um, is that the puns you were talking about? Yeah, just dumb, dumb humor. Um, never, never got any reaction at home, so I always have to use it when I'm speaking someplace else. Um, and see, and then people laugh, so it's 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 positive reinforcement. Um, <laughs> 
somebody says they believe in the Old Testament tithe, you should say, oh, you give 23 and a third percent to the Lord's work. I bet they don't. <laughs> but in the New Testament, there is still concern for the poor. The passage that Rick read, you can only... You cannot serve both God and money or mammon, which is all material possessions, almost personified as a God itself. Um, Jesus' parables, the rich fool who accumulates without any thought of the needy around him, and all of a sudden it's time to die, and what good was that? Or the rich man in Lazarus who doesn't even help the the neighbor, the poor beggar, the destitute man who's probably on death's door because he goes on to die in the parable. And he can't say that the need wasn't local. He can't say that he didn't know about the need. Um, and at the end of that parable, he begs Abraham, God's spokesman in the parable, to send Lazarus back or somebody to warn his brothers who are still alive so that they might repent. Oh. So it wasn't just his lack of helping the poor. He admitted that he had never become right with God. He needed to repent. But then the flip side is if you become right with God, you help the poor. And so we read in James um, a statement like, uh, well, this one's probably worth reading word for word. Chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Oh, yeah, uh, sure, faith has to produce works. Uh, that's abstract enough. I can agree to that. Exhibit A in the courtroom. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed. Notice how those two commands correspond to having clothes and having food that they don't have and are not being given. But does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Not dying, not in a coma, not on life support, it ain't there. If you claim to be a believer and have never once in your lifetime used money to help poor people, you're not one. How's that for being blunt? And if your attitude is, <laughs> it's all their fault, well, then you're wrong. For some of them it is, but not for a lot of the others. <laughs> and... Um, if your attitude in general is to avoid 
conversations about helping the poor and needy, including giving a generous part of your church's budget, not just individually, then it's time to go back and start reading the Bible again because that's sort of exhibit A. Somebody says, well, that's why Martin Luther had a problem with James. He was all this work stuff. But I can go to First John who's talking about faith in Jesus Christ right, left, and center, and he says in 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them... It doesn't even talk about whether you give them anything or not. It's, what's your heart response? Does your heart grieve, or is your heart hardened, or are you immediately making a rationalization or an excuse? How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so we've already stumbled across, uh, transition to the third key theme. Wealth is a good thing. Wealth can be very seductive. The best way, point number three, to avoid wealth being not just a temptation, but actually leading us to sin is to give a generous amount of it away. What percentage? There ain't one in the New Testament. What qualifies in your circumstances at the moment as before God and no one else genuinely generous or maybe even think of sacrificial how do you define a sacrifice it means giving up something you'd really like to have not something trivial if I can meet all my wish lists and give 10% on top of that to the church, that's not being generous in the least. See, see the problem with a fixed percentage is it's too challenging for the poor and for everybody else it's too little if we're really going to be generous and sacrificial. Now, I've got more text, but Rick also did one of these things that, you know, the tech flow people do in the morning, <laughs> put little times when stuff's supposed to end. <laughs> and at five after, I'm supposed to be done with question one. <laughs> so, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Blumberg. That was that was awesome. And and I will say in my own defense, in class, every day 
we, we always had that, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes at the end of class for some question-answer time. Um, I was always excited. We're all going to ask our questions to Dr. Blomberg, and we usually only answered one or two of them. Because... <laughs> You're a lecturer, and that's a good thing. So thank you. Um, well, it gets worse in Germany. <laughs> um, if you are, uh, I want to tell the story <laughs> real quick. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> if you're a, if you're a lecturer in if you're a guest lecturer in Germany, somebody comes in and the, the you don't have a prepared talk. Mm. It's just like, right, what questions do you want to ask? Mm -hmm. The unspoken rule is whoever the first speaker is has actually already canvassed the room and is speaking as a representative of everyone so that once the guest speaker hears that question, they have to impromptu talk on that question for all the rest of the time. I say that just to say it could have been worse. Uh, yeah. Um, you, you, you already went into the tithe, and so I'm really going to throw you off here. I'm going to jump into question number four. Do it. You, you, you've, you've already said um, we're not under that, that old covenant um, tithing. Um, but you do talk, at least in one of your books, um, about something you've implemented in your life, the graduated tithe. Um, if you can explain what that is um, and, and how's it fleshed itself out in your own life. It's a tithe that's gone to high school. And, no. Um, not my idea. Um, some of you may have heard of the name, Ron Sider. He passed away just a couple of years ago, but the longer somebody's dead, the quicker people forget him. Um, I keep reminding myself of that as I age. And um, he was, for many years, the president of Evangelicals for Social Action. I don't even know if that group still exists. Um, but um, he wrote a book that came out um, the year before my wife and I got married, back in the dark ages in 1978 called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. It went through five editions, the last of which I think was published in 2005. And one of the things that he suggests at the end of the book, and he even gives tables so you can see what it looks like if, if math is a swear word for you. Um, and the idea is that all other things being equal which they never are, but all other things being equal, the more money I make, the higher percentage of giving is probably going to be needed if I am to truly and honestly be generous or even sacrificial. Um, the less I make, the less it takes. And so... He proposed a model of a person starting wherever they currently were in terms of their giving, and every year in which net income adjusted for inflation increased, challenge yourself and the family to increase the percentage of, of giving. And if it goes down, 
don't feel you have to stay at the same level, great if you can't, but don't have to. Um, and and Fran and I were were very convicted by that. We got married um, three weeks before we left the country for a three-year honeymoon in Scotland called PhD studies, um, and experienced what some of you may have had at different levels of education, where um, your finances uh, are like a conduit. Um, any money that comes in goes straight to the institution. Um, and, and if you're lucky, maybe you can grab a little as it floats by um, for some of your needs. And we said, let's just try 10% at that level. Um, it's probably going to be hard. We're not doing it because we think we have to. Um, and hope that I actually get a job as a result of my education. That doesn't always happen either. Some of you may have had that experience. Um, and that therefore our income will increase. And if it is a teaching job, typically the way teachers' salaries are, I came from a family of public school teachers, I knew how it worked. The longer you taught, um, at least some years, uh, you got a raise, if you got extra education, that helped some too. And um, then our very first pastor at uh, Scottish Baptist Church, and our second pastor, when my first teaching job was in South Florida, and we were, as it happened, a Baptist church there as well, both in low-key ways that you might have had to be at the church for a year or so before you even found out, but in appropriate ways on different occasions, let people know that they aim to give 25% of their income back to the Lord, back to their church, but also to other people and organizations that they supported. And I didn't know exact figures, but I knew that neither of those men was, um, you know, getting the private planes like some of the megachurch prosperity gospel preachers. Um, and I thought, that should be a great challenge. I hope we can get there someday. And, and one of the fascinating things is, if you budget, and if you decide on the percentage, and as soon as you get the paycheck, well, we used to write something called checks. <laughs> now there are other ways of paying. Um, Write the check and then figure out how you're going to live on the rest. It's doable. And if you go one year from 10% to 11%, you barely notice at all. Um, how far do you want me to go in that story? This was a five-minute segment, I think. You can go as long as you want. We've, we've tried to do that. We've tried to do that all our lives, um, our adult lives. And I used to wonder when uh, I'd hear a speaker say, 
You can't outgive God. The more we make, the more we give away, and the more God just keeps bringing more in. And that's just a cliche. <clears throat> I don't know, but I've got a problem. It's what He's been doing, um, and and now. I'm trying to give new meaning to the acronym RINO, retired in name only, but um, we can't give the, the percentage that, I mean, at one point we hit 50% for two years and somebody said you can't count that all for the IRS and go, oh, okay. Um, we've had to back down, but I don't want that to be... Um, I don't want it to back down as far as mm. to the same degree that our income is decreasing. So, mm. yeah, it's a it's a lifelong challenge, and and you got to talk with at least one other person, hopefully close to you, and be on the same page. Man, that's encouraging. Um, the next question, I'll just work up here now. How, how should Christians, how should we think about retirement and, 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 and saving for retirement? I, I jotted some notes to myself and then went back and, and rethought this again. And I thought, I'm not sure I know what the question is asking. Is the question a setup for these people who say there's no retirement in the Bible <laughs> I've decided what my answer to that is there's no basketball either <laughs> <laughs> the Bible is not a, a, a dictionary of what should we think about spy balloons? What should we... Where <laughs> um, you can look up any ethical issue that could ever come up and there's going to be a chapter and a verse. Um, no, of course not. In the biblical cultures, there typically wasn't retirement because nobody had the, had the luxury of it. Um, that really tells us nothing about God's view. I have unfortunately watched too many men, and I deliberately use the gender-exclusive word. I'm sure it's happened to women, but the couple dozen examples I can think of from throughout my life have all been men who have refused to face the fact that as you get in your 60s and in your 70s, with rare exception, you cannot push your body the way you did when you were in your 20s or 30s. And they don't live beyond those ages because finally the body says enough. So especially in the jobs that require uh, a lot of physical stamina. It's good stewardship to think about retiring. Nobody should think about retiring from being a Christian, though. The three years we lived in South Florida before moving to Denver, 
we met a lot of snowbirds. You know what a snowbird is? I, I didn't. I was from Illinois. <laughs> Never heard the word. Um, snowbird was somebody who lived up north but lived up to six months in Florida and maybe eventually bought property there and settled property there. And it was amazing. In just three years, the number of people I met who were active churchgoers when they were Yankees. And they had retired from church. Didn't go, didn't do anything. Do you still believe in Jesus? Of course I do. Really? How does that work? <laughs> um, but what you do in ministry may need to change. How much you do may need to slow down. Um, if it's not a ministry-related job, yeah, maybe for whatever reason you need to keep making some money, but find a way that it's not 80 hours a week. <laughs> Maybe not even 40. And then there's the topic my millennial daughters introduced to me. Every one of us that hangs on to a full-time job longer than we should is keeping a younger person out of the workforce and making it that much harder for them to support themselves and or a family when their needs are usually greater than ours. Ouch. That's what you have kids for. So I don't know if any of that answered what you hoped I would talk about there. Yeah, that, that was awesome. I, and, and I do think even our thoughts behind retirement, what retirement is, um, and that, that was... Oh, yeah. It's not... Yeah, thanks for reminding me. You, you, you've seen... Well, some of you remember something called a bookstore? <laughs> there still are a few in the area. Um, you go in the section and, and in the travel section, I, I find them fascinating. A hundred places you must see before you die. Have you seen that kind of book? I eagerly flip through it and I go, oh my gosh, I've been so privileged. My wife and I have been to 40 countries. We have seen 16 of these hundred places. <laughs> and the odds of getting to more than a couple, three more are pretty slim. I'm a failure. <laughs> Time to sign up for cruise of the month. No, that, that's the American secular myth about what retirement should be. If you believe in new heavens and new earth, we're going to get to see all those places anyway when they're even better than they are now. So chill. Amen. 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 That was awesome. Yes, yes. Sorry. No, that was great. Thank you. Um, I'm going to jump to question five here. Um, we, we may take a break after this one. Um, I can be quicker. No, no, no. Uh, you're, you're doing a, a fabulous job, Dr. Glumberg. I can still be quicker. <laughs> I think this is an important one. Um, I, I sat in Dr. Joey Dotson's Paul class last semester, and you came in as a guest speaker and gave us a lecture on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, I remember being blown away by your implications 
um, to that passage. A, a couple of them were, do what is right and be seen to do what is right. So could you spend some time, as much time as you need, and briefly unpack, and briefly <laughs> unpack however long you want to take that passage to us. And I would love if you can help us to see how, how being seen to do what is right is actually a biblical idea when it comes to generosity within the yeah. local church. Paul has been taking up this collection for the Christians in Judea who were the worst off in a famine that hit the eastern part of the Roman Empire particularly hard in around 46, 47, 48 AD. Um, it's now the mid-50s, but there are still lingering effects. Um, and he has been to Corinth a year earlier they have made pledges about how generous they are going to be. Corinth as a community was one of the wealthiest cities in uh, the Roman Empire in the first century. We already talked about how not many of them were well-to-do, but that means a few were. And basically chapter 8 verses 1 to 15 is saying you guys promised a year ago to give X number of well they weren't dollars <laughs> and uh, you're lagging behind but it's okay I'm coming to town you got time to catch up oh by the way I don't know how many of you can mentally imagine a map of the Greek Peninsula. If you can't, it looks kind of like that. Um, the bottom part was Achaia, Corinth, and Athens were in the bottom part. They were two big cities there. Macedonia was the top part. That gets confusing because today Macedonia is a country above Greece, but it was the northern half of Greece that had places like Thessalonica and Philippi, um, Berea, and so forth. And so Paul basically says the Macedonian churches were poor and in the midst of a severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity that's weird it's not in spite of their extreme poverty it's it's as if to say because of their extreme poverty, they know what it's like to be needy, and therefore they wanted to be as generous as possible to help the Christians in Judea. Now, isn't it going to be really embarrassing in a culture of honor and shame? Isn't it going to put you to shame if the richer church doesn't give as much as the poorer churches already have? So that's... 8, 1 to 15 in a nutshell. Then comes 8, 16 to 9, 5, which is, and I am doing everything I know how, Paul says, so that there is accountability built into this collection from day one because it's not just hit a button and withdraw from your bank account and put it into the church with all the security that goes with that unless you were hacked yesterday. Um, you've 
got to physically collect the coins, put them in bags, put them on the ship, hope the ship makes it. Most did, but not all. Make sure nobody pilfers anything from the bags for the weeks that the ship is sailing. Go from shore, travel overland to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's not a coastal town, and get the exact number of coins, maybe even an ingot or two, that you were given to the elders of the church in Jerusalem in a way that reassures them and the givers not just that you know it all got there safely, but they will know and trust that it got there safely. And so a lot of what Paul is sort of cryptically doing here is talking about people he is going to send along with the offering. Um, Titus, starting in 8.16, um, who Paul trusts. In verse 18, we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What's more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering. Verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. By the way, in the, the successive editions of the NIV, this is now the only remaining place in the Bible where the English word liberal appears. But we wanted to keep it there to remind people it can be a positive term. <laughs> a liberal gift. <laughs> For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man, of people. But then... In addition, we're sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. And now even more. Who are these people? Apparently the Corinthians knew. Paul knew. need to mention names. One of them is somebody that the Corinthian Christians trust implicitly. One of them is somebody that Paul trusts implicitly. Titus is somebody that both trust implicitly. So at the very least, out of the three people going along on the boat, everybody trusts at least two out of three, and hopefully all three. And then Paul says, and if it seems right to me, I'll accompany it. In other words, if you give enough, hint, hint, wink, wink. Um, and that's not a part of the chapter that we pay that much attention to. Um, we all can tell the horror stories um, of mismanagement of funds. Um, if it makes the news, it makes the news in a big way, sadly. That's what the media likes to grab a hold of, sex and money and how we abuse it. <laughs> and never report on the two million good things that are going on in, in Christian circles. It needs to be, they need to be held accountable. It needs to be done 
absolutely scrupulously, but it needs to be known. It needs to be seen to be done that way. So there's trustworthy people. Um, yeah, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing in the context of don't do your works before people so that they praise you. But earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So do things in the sight of humans so they will glorify God. That's the difference. And, and one of the ways that people will glorify God, one of the ways that's crucial in our corrupt world is that our books are open to anyone who wants to see them. And they've not been fiddled with. And ask any questions you want because we got nothing to hide. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Blomberg. Why don't we... Let's go to this last question. You can you can you can be quick here, and then uh, yes, sir. We'll take a little little bathroom break. <laughs> um, all right. In your book, neither poverty nor riches, you say generous giving rather than selfish hoarding, accompanied accompanied by compassionate commitment to doing what will most help the genuinely needy, must remain a priority for God's people. Um, I don't think anyone in here would disagree with that statement. Hallelujah. <laughs> but we do live in Douglas County, one of the top five riches uh, counties in the, in the nation, um, where our town statute is the self-made man, and, and comfort is one of our idols. And so, I was looking for that as I drove here. Can you can you show me where? No, I'm yeah, is it Main Street? <laughs> yeah, just down on Main Street. It's a pretty cool statute, actually. Um, oh, you are serious? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How interesting. My question, what are some practical ways in which we never lose sight of this priority as God's people in the midst of a county filled with wealth and comfort? You want a short answer? Yeah. Travel. Hmm. At least as far as downtown. Hmm. Become familiar with the poor neighborhoods in the metro area. Mm, that's good. Mm. Travel to other parts of the country. If, if Douglas County is that wealthy, then I know people are always traveling. Mm. Go to Mexico, not to Cancun. That's part of Florida. Go to Mexico. <laughs> Go to the non-resort parts, mm. which is 99.9%. Um, mm. Go to Africa. Go, go wherever. You got the money, do it. Remind yourself the way most of the world lives. That's the shortest answer I know of. Amen. That's a good answer. All right. So we will open the floor up to uh, some Q&A time. If you guys wouldn't mind coming up here and asking the question in the mic for the sake of the podcast. So maybe the person on deck can kind of sit in that chair. Um, but why don't we open that up? Hi. Hi. Question is, what has debt service look like in the Old Testament, New Testament, Middle Time, Middle Ages? Let's say 50, 60 years ago, 
and now and what I mean how does that how does that change or how does that apply how does that make what the Bible says about money and debt how does it impact our lives differently now than 2,000 5,000 years ago and what does it mean for our kids well we don't have to sell ourselves into slavery anymore um, we don't have to worry about being thrown into debtor's prison where there's no opportunity to earn any money. Um, so things are a lot better in, in, in many respects. Um, <coughs> debt in biblical times uh, with the various <laughs> cultures, both when Israel was an independent nation and then um, the various empires that invaded and occupied it, including Rome during the first century. Um, if you owed someone debt, um, it was usually to a person. You know, I owed debt for a while to the University of Aberdeen and I never really associated it with a face because even the people that collected the money um, might or might not be working in that role in the next year. It was just a job. And, um, but in the ancient world, you, you owed debt to a person for something, often a, a money lender. Um, very few restrictions on what kind of interest that person could choose to charge could be utterly exorbitant, 50%, 100%. Um, and if you could not repay, then um, depended on the, the lender. Occasionally there were some gracious ones. That's been true throughout history. Um, oh, just give me another period of time. I know I'm gonna get a windfall. <laughs> Even though you didn't the last 12 times you said that, but. Um, and there were some that were average and there were a lot that were very strict. Um, and if you couldn't, rustle up the money from all of the sources that were legally or illegally at your disposal. Um, the first recourse would be uh, for an Israelite, find a friendly, wealthier Israelite who would be willing to hire you as an indentured servant. Um, and maybe more than just you needed to do it in your family and maybe your whole family needed to do it. Um, if that didn't give you enough income to pay off the debt, then uh, debtor's prison. And you get this language, you know, Jesus says at the end of the parable, the unforgiving servant, you know, be thrown in prison till he's paid the last penny. And Roman Catholics have sometimes appealed to that for the, the doctrine of purgatory. See, when you finally have paid all your debt, then, then we'll let you out. Well, the trouble was, there was no mechanism for making money in an ancient prison. And so uh, unless someone who had not come to your aid while you were a free person now took pity on you, seeing how severe your situation was, um, a huge debt, 
landing you in debtor's prison basically meant you were there until you died. Um, and the conditions were not remotely as humane as uh, our Western and, and North American prisons are today. Um, so if some of our financial gurus um, rightly say getting out of or staying out of debt should be a huge priority um, with the possible exception of it's hard to buy a house and get higher education sometimes without that. Um, it's not impossible. We've never gone into debt to buy a car. I mean, that's only if you want certain kinds of cars. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it was a, a huge, a huge priority in, uh, in biblical times. Um, I don't know, that's a question I could go in a hundred directions with or just say, buy Financial Peace University. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, that's awesome, no, that's good. Any, any, I don't see anyone in that, in that seat. Any other questions? There were two or three hands that all went up a while back. How do you hold intention, um, responsible saving for a rainy day? And I put my trust in my rainy day savings. And I guess that, that can be extrapolated out into a lot of areas of life, but trusting in my own ability to plan, save for the future, but not having that be my security. With great difficulty. Um, that's the perennial challenge. That's where, you guys related? So. Okay. Well, I mean, the whole the whole front row is filled, so I didn't know. Uh, oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. You're already beyond the national average. Good for you. Um, yeah. Less, uh, point number one: decide together. Point number two: if and when you have kids old enough to enter the conversation, involve them. Point number three, if you ever meet somebody you can trust so much as to divulge some of your finances to them, and not just trust, but somebody whose input you would trust as well as trusting them with that information, involve them because it's kind of like proofreading. You're the world's worst proofreader of your own work because you know what you intended to write, and so that's what you see. But when somebody else reads it, so look at all those errors. Um, of like, course, my intentions, like my, my intentions are flawless, and I've put together the perfect package. Well, does she agree? Do they agree? Does Mrs. Williams agree? Is there anybody here named that? I just made up a name. Um, yeah, it, 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 oh, I thought somebody was starting to say something. <laughs> just the baby. Um, <laughs> didn't like that idea I was about to share. But um, the fact that you're asking the question is the first wonderful sign. 
um, because it is attention. Um, and, and to say, am I, on the one hand, being responsible toward the commitments and needs that I have in life? And am I, on the other hand, doing my best to be generous and giving, giving to the Lord's work? Um, and I can only speak for myself, but usually I know when one of those is out of whack. I may not want to admit it, but, but usually I know. And if I don't, somebody else needs to give me some, some trustworthy input. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, just to follow up on that, you said involve your kids. What is that practically? What can that look like at different ages? And how? maybe how did you do that? We had two wonderful girls. Um, I digress to say they both slept through the night at about nine weeks and is like, we didn't deserve that. <laughs> one of our one of our very best friends, the wife of a colleague that I worked with for for 36 years, said, "Well, God never gives us more than He can handle. We knew you couldn't handle much." <laughs> um, <laughs> And I really feel like that's been true of our girls to this day. Um, high school, junior high, because um, they were three and a half years apart. Sorry, middle school. I still think in terms of my education. <laughs> um, talking to them about what does the seminary pay? What other sources of income? do we have? Uh, my wife never worked full-time, but there was a time when she worked part-time, uh, times when she didn't. Um, we know you want to go to college. We know we want to help you with that. Um, my mother was amazingly generous. I, I couldn't have manufactured that. She was generous in, in helping me go through school, though never paying for it all. Um, she was generous in helping our daughters go through school, though never paying for it all. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think probably even when Rachel was in fourth or fifth grade, because Beth would have been in middle school, they heard some of our conversations. Um, <laughs> Beth, to this day, hates math with a vengeance. And Rachel is an absolute whiz at it. You'd think they got genes from someplace other than just the two of us. Um, but because the younger one was the whiz with numbers, she could keep up and sometimes understand better than the older one when we talked about stuff. So it felt weird. It, it has felt weird talking to friends, talking to fellow Christians talking to audiences because I came from a family where you did not tell anyone a word about what daddy makes. 
this is the 11th commandment. <laughs> and my parents were regular churchgoers and, and genuine Christians, in my opinion. Um, the first time I loaned my car to somebody in college, I thought I was committing a mortal sin because something that valuable you do not share with another person. That's way too dangerous. And I kept reading the Bible. It seemed like the right thing to do. And it never came back to bite me. Maybe someday it will. I have to be aware of that. But um, but I digress. That's awesome. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Um, yes, Pastor. Yeah. Dr. Blumberg, I um, had you for several classes. but And now you can have your own back. <laughs> But I had, uh, we had Greek exegesis of the book of James, and there's one class that I remember of the thousands of classes I took. At the end of that class, you said, after we've dug into the Greek and the textual variants and just really theologically deep, you stopped the whole class and you said, okay, there's, it's pointless to study this book without applying this book. So this whole class, we will brainstorm together how we will actually apply what we learned. And, and that struck me for 20 years now, like that class. So how do, how do we transition in uh, American Christianity where we've defined discipleship of how much knowledge you can know about the Bible to, I mean, how, how do you come to a point in your own life where it's like, okay, this is not just a no, because you, you, you know more than anyone in this room combined. How do you transition I don't know that? that. <laughs> That's the one thing you don't know. Um, but how do you, how do you uh, yeah, so how did you come to a point where like it wasn't just uh, a study to get a degree, but like to apply? Like how, how did you make that transition from study to apply in the Bible? This, this has to do with money, but it has to do with everything also. So I'll let you answer that question. I don't, I don't know that... I was ever in an environment for any significant period of time that did anything else. I came to faith through a Youth for Christ Campus Life Club in my high school. I was nurtured in college through Campus Crusade for Christ. I mean, if they were practical about everything. Um, I was blessed that the, the club directors I had were also pretty theologically on target, which isn't always the case with parachurch groups. But the idea of not applying something, I don't think ever occurred to me. Um, in seminary, yeah, there are some class periods where you ran out of time, especially back when no period went more than 50 minutes. <laughs> but sooner or later in the class, if the prof didn't volunteer it, the questions the students asked made sure that the profs did. Um, I can't imagine settling on a church if after visiting several times, sermons were nothing but imparting factual knowledge. Um, and I say all that 
without wanting to put down your question because I have heard so many stories over my life about people who have had very different experiences that I know that exists and I know it exists big time. I just don't go in those circles and they don't invite me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a better answer than that. That's awesome. Thanks. Patagonia. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I'm curious. Th there's this passage in uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, uh, 22 and 23, kind of sandwiched between um, a few verses talking about, you know, not laying up for yourselves uh, treasures on earth. And then in Matthew 6, 24, you know, no one can serve two masters. But there's this passage about, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I've never understood what that meant. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts because it seems to me that it's relevant and I'm probably missing something that's staring right in front of me. It, it's not um, that obvious because we know too much. Um, this makes no sense in light of modern ophthalmology. Um, so we have to under we have to understand what first century people knew and therefore assumed. They assumed that um, light somehow entered the eye and if your eyes were good, if they were functioning properly, if they were healthy, then you saw things clearly, including light, and what each part of the eye was for and reflection and refraction and all that was, was basically unknown. So I think our problem is we try to say there must be something here I'm not getting, when basically, Jesus saying, what you look at, what you see, what you dwell on, what you think about, the most determines what you're going to be like. And if that process means that we're dwelling on darkness. <laughs> if, if the part of our lives that are supposed to bring light creates darkness, well, we got lots of other things that can bring darkness, like where our feet take us or, or our stomachs <laughs> take us or... Um, <laughs> But if, if the one place that has something to do with the light um, takes us to darkness also, well then, gosh, everything's pretty dark. I don't think it means anything more than that, actually. <laughs> but it, it's not scientific, yeah. <laughs> so we have a covenant members meeting coming up next week. Um, and a question that we often get in those covenant member meetings is uh, the, of the idea of giving to the local church versus giving to parachurch ministries or giving to the poor. Um, so how would you encourage our church into how we should think about 
the priority of giving to the local church versus parachurch ministries and so forth? By creating church budgets that give to the parachurch and give to the poor. Mm. So for the person who does nothing but give to your church, they're doing all those things anyway. Mm. And then saying, and if you're giving generously to the church and you've got more, by all means, give to those others also directly. It's great. Doesn't need to be any jealousy or tension there. Amen. That's helpful. Anyone else? So as a follow-up to that question, do you think that believers have like a heightened um, responsibility to give to the local church first? And then I also am curious if you have any wisdom on how you be generous with your kids without spoiling them. That's good. Don't give them everything they ask for. <laughs> Don't try to make their lives so free from hardship that they never learn how to cope with it while they're under your roof. Don't take them to something every night of the week, no matter how much they want to. I will not pontificate on how many nights are appropriate. <laughs> we gave our girls choice of one, but they weren't athletes, so I know it gets harder when you have athletes. Um, it was a time when our younger daughter was in middle school. She was in a, a pretty highfalutin Littleton community choir. And they changed the time they were going to meet to conflict exactly with her middle school midweek youth group. We said, Rachel, it's your choice. We're not going to tell you which one. And I was somewhat surprised when she picked the church group. Very happy. But um, I think the best thing I ever heard on parenting, I can't say I did it flawlessly, was a Christian speaker when I was in college who said, the goal of parenting is to surround the newborn with absolutely as much protection and safety and nurture as possible and spend the next 18, 20, 21, however many years ever so incrementally giving them their freedom. Hmm. And <laughs> my daughter with kids, I know, this is what happens to grandparents. <laughs> it happens every generation. She talks about wanting to model emotionally mature responses to things with her three-year-olds. It's a wonderful ideal. <laughs> but when the kid is hurting someone, you don't, in a polite tone of voice, try to model an emotion. <laughs> 
you raise your voice, you get up, you take the kid's hand off of the one she's banging on, <laughs> and you make it clear that this is not acceptable. And it doesn't take that long for the kid to figure it out. <laughs> And then somewhere comes adolescence, <laughs> and because they've given them too much freedom, they start to realize the consequences and now try to rein it in, and that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. But I had two wonderful girls, so <laughs> um, I'm not I'm not the new Jim Dobson. Not not by by what was the original question? <laughs> <laughs> is there is there a priority as well? Uh, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah, I think there is. Um, I don't want to make that legalistic. If if I lived in uh, West Overshoe, Northwest Nebraska, or some place, you know, where in a town of fifty, there's two churches and one is flamingly liberal and you don't like how the church spends its money and the other one which is where you go. Um, it might be different. But in the Denver metro area when there are so many options. The person who says, I just can't go to church anymore because the church does X, Y, or Z has not remotely exhausted all the options. They're not even aware of all the options. Um, and if you've tried politely over a period of years rather than months to influence your church for the better and there is some glaring problem with their giving, then you need to go someplace where you can get on board with the giving and give generously, is my opinion. But I can't quote you chapter and verse for that because nobody in the Bible ever envisioned the parachurch. <laughs> mm. Parachurch only came to being after World War II because churches weren't doing their jobs or able mm. to do certain specialized things in different areas. Mm. A sign of a good parachurch movement is when it's done its job and it agrees to disband. Mm. That does not happen very often, though I have seen it happen. Again, I ramble. No, we love your ramble, Dr. Blomberg. Anyone else? I'm afraid again. <laughs> That's good. So we um, are going through Exodus as a church. They're preaching through Exodus, and a lot of us are reading through the Bible in a year together right now. So cool. we're in Leviticus. So things are cool. law heavy. Yeah, super cool. Um, <laughs> things feel law heavy, but... Our pastors are helping us think through you know, that we are no longer under the law. Um, we are under Christ's law. And you spoke to the threefold tithe, which was helpful. Um, I wonder if you could unpack a little bit more, like what it means to be a New Testament giver. Um, a little bit more like about what our motives should be or... Um, yeah, maybe just a little more heart 
behind that. Um, it's hard. Yeah, I, I struggle with like bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of our hear more. longtime best friends, I think we met them the first year we moved here in 86. Our Ted and Shelley Travis, who are retired now, but for years, uh, Ted ran neighborhood ministries uh, and outreach in the city to uh, black and Hispanic youth in neighborhoods that were black and Hispanic, um, and he's a black man. He married a, wh a white woman. Um, he's <laughs> the only person in my life I've ever heard say this, but I've got his permission to quote him. God loves a generous giver. No question about it. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a sacrificial giver. God loves a giver who is happy, who is eager to help. But if your motives are wrong, the poor still need your money. <laughs> so if you can't give cheerfully, give anyway. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm asking this for a friend. This is not, not for me. Yeah, but I've heard that line yeah. before. Uh, so my friend is really curious. Um, so when my friend approaches his monthly budget, we're working out those details and the heart is not feeling generous, is not, you know, feeling those warm fuzzies that we just talked about. How do you approach that? You're making your decisions not based on how you feel. Mm. You're making them based on everything we've talked about. Mm. Um, is this a male or female friend? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Good answer. Scott. I want to ask about the parable of the shrewd manager. Luke 16. So, uh, oh no, I lost it. Was it Luke 16? Yep. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Yep. Shoot, I had it on the page. Verse 1. Well, I just lost it on my phone, so do you have it here? Yeah. Okay. This is why you need to carry a Bible. I guess so. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay, so I mean, I can read the whole thing or just read the, the, the punchline where, where the question is. Shall I read it? Whatever you want to do. You got the mic. Huh? Let's read it. No, just the question. Okay, so, so basically the, the, the master commends this dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. Right. So you can read the parable if you want to know the whole story. Uh, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What on earth does that mean? That, what on earth does that mean? Good question. It means that the man who had a head servant who did something corrupt, unspecified, and therefore um, had what back in the day we used to call two weeks notice. <laughs> That was before computers. Now they just fire you and send you away. Um, cooks the books with the man's debtors so that they don't have to pay as much, which cheats the master, but 
in a culture of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, ingratiates these people so that they will take care of the man who's been fired because he doesn't want to do manual labor. And the master commends him. The master commends the dishonest manager. Not for being dishonest, it's not what it says, but because he had acted shrewdly. That was very clever. It was very culturally appropriate and effective. It was not ethical. The story is not being told so that Christians imitate the corrupt part of it, but that they imitate the shrewd part of it. Because we're not always that shrewd. <laughs> if you're a person who works in the financial side of a secular company, and you got to canvas 50 churches at random in the Denver metro area, you would be appalled at the way at least some of them manage their money. It certainly isn't shrewd. So Christians have to get shrewder without being unethical. Mm. And what's one way to do that? Verse 9, use worldly wealth. The uh, King James Version says mammon of unrighteousness. It's an expression similar to our expression filthy lucre. It's not a way of saying use particularly tainted money. It's a way of saying use money material possessions, which, all of which sooner or later pass through some tainted hands. So just use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves who if they die and go to heaven before you will welcome you when you show up because what you did with your money helped them come to the Lord or grow in the Lord or meet their desperate needs or whatever. Sounds cool to me. Amen. Sounds awesome. And this has been great. Um, do you have any final closing remarks? Oh, yes. Two minutes to go before we hit the 620. I appreciate your spirit. I don't know that every last person in the room has been responding positively to what I say. There may be somebody here who is... Under your breath, get him out of here. Um, yeah, it it comes back to hard attitude. Um, so many people try to create the law that you have to follow. And, and to me, the, the first question I would want to ask is, except I want somebody else to ask you when I'm long gone. So on balance, how did you react to Blomberg? 
besides either liked or didn't like his dumb jokes. Were you kind of annoyed that he got in your face at times? Or does this really make you eager to say, yeah, I can do a little better? Um, I've often had people come up to me and say, I agree with everything you say, but you, you, don't, you don't know my finances. You don't know my situation. And that's right, I don't. If I didn't think it was unethical, I would bet money. <laughs> Fairly substantial amount, in fact. If you're willing to be honest with me about what you spend your money on on a monthly basis, we could find some ways where we could free up some things so you could be a little more generous. I think that has something to do with, what did you call it, Douglas County? <laughs> um, how much do you eat out? Our neighbor's granddaughter, our neighbors are in their 80s, so do the math. Um, when she grew up and left home, always went out to eat and quickly ran out of money. And, and her grandparents said, well, why don't you ever buy some food and prepare it? You know, it's a lot cheaper that way. She said, really? <laughs> My parents always ate out. I thought that was because that was the cheapest way. <laughs> well, you don't have to go to that extreme. Mm. One less Starbucks? Mm. A week? Mm. A day? <laughs> um, entertainment? Kind of cars, kind of furniture, amounts of mortgage. Well, pretty soon he gets off teaching into meddling. I am very suspicious of anybody in this room dressed as you are. <laughs> it doesn't have little ways you could be more generous. If you were eager about it, if your heart was in the right place. Uh, went late. Do that at school all the time. It's a minute late. You got to. You got to stop. <laughs> Amen, guys. If we can give it up for Dr. Blomberg, that was awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, um, Mark. Do you want to pray for your old professor? <laughs> and Bob Sarsis. <Sarsus. laughs> Father, we are, are grateful to gather and just the reminder that this life is a vapor and that we have a very short time and that we get to steward all that we have, our lives, our families, our possessions, Lord. And you have given us many, many good gifts in this room and many of us have an abundance and we're grateful for that and we enjoy those things and we want to honor you in the joy of those things, but we also want to honor you in the, um, the giving away of those things, Lord, knowing that... Uh, our bucket list goes all throughout eternity with you. So, Lord, help us now to do what we can't do in heaven and give to the poor uh, and support the advance of the kingdom of God. So, 
Yeah, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would stir in our hearts and our minds, even as we have conversations with our friends and our spouses and with one another as we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Um, I pray, Lord, that our church would reflect the generosity that you've shown us so in Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Redemption Institute podcast. You can learn more about Redemption Institute or any of our other ministries at redemptionparker.org.